Welcome to the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast, where we discuss and provide solutions to some of the pressing socioeconomic issues of this era. I'm Fred Olayale, your host. From practice and policy to research and scholarship, we go beyond the rhetoric to lay bare several critical issues. For too long, policy failures around the world have contributed to unfair economic designs that have perpetrated extreme inequality and poverty. And while it is easy to blame modern capitalism for the perils of society, from poverty and inequality to unemployment and the climate crisis, one thing seems clear. It is not easy to offer an alternative to the capitalist mode of wealth creation. And that's clear from the improvements in standards of living and the impacts of the innovations around us. For development to be sustainable, it's got to be inclusive. More segments of society need to participate in the economy. After all, economic growth and social inclusion need not be mutually exclusive. To unpack these complexities, we invite some of the world's leading experts in the inclusive economic development space. From practice and policy to research and scholarship, our guests are among the best in their fields. Today, we will examine an important topic, intergenerational economic mobility. High income gaps remain an impediment to socioeconomic mobility of the less well-off. To move the needle, underlying structural barriers must be addressed. To unpack this, my guest on today's episode is Jeff Finkel, President and CEO of the International Economic Development Council in Washington, DC. Jeff is a recognized leader and authority on economic development. With the formation of the International Economic Development Council in 2001, following the merger of the Council for Urban Economic Development, where he was president for 15 years, and the American Economic Development Council, Jeff set the course for a more effective and influential organization. Today, IEDC is the world's largest economic development membership organization that is renowned for its leadership in professionalizing and diversifying the field of economic development. He previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the US Department of Housing and Urban Development and has received numerous awards over the years for his commitment to making sustainable economic development a priority in communities of all sizes. A frequent lecturer and author of numerous articles, Jeff has appeared on 
CBS Sunday Morning, Fox Television, and the Journal Report on PBS. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Communications in 1976 from Ohio University in Athens and pursued graduate studies in Business Administration at Ohio State University. Welcome, Jeff. Great to see you, Fred. Always great to see you. Thank you very much. Now, let's delve straight into this. First, I want us to talk about the American dream in reference to James Truslow Adams in his 1931 book, The Epic of America. So in economic terms, the American dream is based on the notion of high intergenerational economic mobility in the United States. In other words, children are expected to achieve a higher standard of living than the household in which they were raised, whether in terms of housing, education, or health outcomes. However, empirical evidence shows that the dream may be slowly fading away. What do you say to that? Is that true of us and why? So Fred, I, I think unfortunately it's probably true. Um, there are people who are exceeding the household they grew up in. But let's, let's uh, I'm from the Midwest of the United States. I'm from Ohio, an industrial uh, producing state. Also a fair amount of agriculture. When I graduated from high school, I went on to college, but other people who did not go on to college, they could leave high school. They could get a blue collar job they could join the labor union. Uh, within a few years, they could own their own house. Uh, they could put, put their kids through college and they could help their children step up a step on the ladder. I'm afraid that that is not as much the case as it might've been in 1972 or before. That was clearly true for the baby boomers. The baby boomers came back from World War II. They, some of them went to universities on the GI Bill. Some of them walked immediately into a, a job on the factory floor, carpenters, building houses, plumbers, and they all were able to buy a home today. Uh, home ownership is not as high. We, a lot of people uh, lost uh, their homes during the, uh, not the pandemic induced recession, but the recession before that. We, um, we have outsourced or offshored some of our manufacturing. Uh, we are competing with places like China, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, places where, where people get paid uh, dollars per day, not dollars per hour. And that has eroded uh, the ability of many people uh, to win. In addition, you know, we've sent a lot of people to college. 
I worry that even some of them, uh, uh, their college degrees may be in vain. They may not be making as much as some people in the blue collar sectors, and some of those are at jeopardy. Um, and we have downplayed some of those blue collar jobs. You know, take a, a, a household plumber um, and compare his wage to a school teacher. Well, the plumber is going to make more than a school teacher. Did we send all of these people in the wrong direction? As we said, you know, go get a college degree versus, hey, consider plumbing, consider electrical work. There are still a lot of blue collar jobs that do pay well, and there's a ton that don't. Uh, this is the dilemma of our times. Um, this, is the, uh, this is the debate that occurred in our uh, national elections. Uh, Trump was uh, appealing to these uh, blue collar voters who th think they're getting a raw deal. And Biden is, uh, was running on a platform where he wanted to reinvest in America's blue collar jobs. Um, that's where the debate, the policy formulation needs to get heavy consideration here in the United States. Uh, excellent. Thank you very much. That uh, covers a number of issues. And education and geography, you know, uh, seemed to be amongst the key factors that you mentioned. So still talking about intergenerational uh, economic mobility. Among many factors that have been examined in the context of uh, economic development, five key factors stand out in the literature. Uh, and I'll mention them quickly. Parental income is a key one. Education, that's number two. Race is three. Gender and geography. So those are five key factors that are drivers you know, of uh, mobility, both in the academic literature and, you know, and for practitioners. So, so the question is based on your decades of experience as a practitioner. Can you share insights about these five factors? And in relative terms, which one factor would you say is the most important and why? So I'm going to ask answer your second question first. I would have a hard time distinguishing as to which is the most important, which is the least important. I think each of them, using a baseball analogy, throws a curveball at us uh, in uh, people's ability to succeed or have upward mobility. Let's take uh, the first one, uh, the parents' income. You know, uh, there is data, which I'm sure you know far better than I, that talks about uh, estates or how much people are left when their parents die. And unfortunately, that is disproportional based on race. Uh, you know, white families tend to leave more behind 
and it has it grows or it has appears to have grown over the years um and that and that has a lot to do with three things income savings and purchasing of a house uh, it is all about the ability to grow and maintain equity if you're at the bottom of the ladder and you are paying rent and not uh, buying into the american dream of a home there's nothing left when you pass away to pass on if you own a home there's a chance of passing that on uh, so this whole issue of both um, parental income and added to it parental savings and parental equity building it seems to me that those are extraordinarily important for the growth of wealth uh, by all of us um, and unfortunately that uh, a fair amount of that is built around race now clearly there is exceptions all the time there are white families that leave nothing behind there are black families that leave millions behind but if you look at it in aggregate or on average uh, it, there is a significant race differentiation second education for the most part people that are higher educated are going to have more wealth people that are higher educated are going to instill education upon their young their children so and that people are that are less educated will have lesser jobs they may be working two jobs they may well instill education but up to a degree because they may not be able to help their children uh, achieve advanced education but education uh, is important i'm going to deal with race and gender together um what we learned excuse me in the pandemic on the loss of small businesses it was um it was exactly what you would expect minority owned businesses had the highest failure rate women owned businesses had an enormous failure rate and unfortunately uh white male owned businesses did not have the failure rate probably because they were older probably because there was they were more established probably because there was more equity into the firm uh, than the other businesses that I just talked about. That is not unusual, uh, and but it is it addresses your issue, I think, particularly head on. And I forget what was the fifth uh, characteristic. I, did I capture them all? Uh, geography. Oh, well, and geography is a tricky one. Uh, clearly, uh, geography plays a both a positive and negative effect, uh, but a positive and negative effect in a different way. It is cheaper to own a business and grow a business in the, in the rural South. Property is not as expensive, people are not as expensive, and you can grow a business. You may not make as much money, but your costs are always much, also much lower. It costs a heck of a lot more where you are, Fred, 
to buy a business, grow a business, maintain employees in New York City. That would also be true of Los Angeles, Chicago, and our major cities. It also takes a lot more capital to start a business. So there are gives and takes. And if you don't have inheritance, if you don't have parents who can lend you money, if you don't have education, these things are even much harder, which gets back to some of the earlier points that you raised and that I responded to a minute ago. Um, I think that's uh, how I would approach uh, the five points that you just raised. Uh, very brilliant. Thank you again. Uh, like we say in economics, you know, a lot of these things depend on the assumption, you know, the parameters and what have you. And I think you, you did justice to that, just like uh, economists do. So thank you. Uh, now I want us to discuss another important matter, you know, and that's a social and economic justice. You know, the, the murder of uh, George Floyd in 2020 marked a profound moment in public reckoning with racial, economic, and social injustice in the US and indeed across the world. A major shift occurred in the aftermath of the pandemic and the social unrest that followed Mr. Floyd's killing. This led to a consensus of such globally that the broken economic system must be fixed. Well, it's been 20 months or so. Can you reflect on the progress since then and the challenges ahead? So Fred, I'm gonna um, answer that question a little differently than you probably would have expected. As you know, you are um, uh, obviously a member of the International Economic Development Council. We are the membership group for economic developers who are trying to create, retain, expand jobs, develop tax base, and enhance wealth. We are mostly US, mostly North American, but we do have an international membership as well. I, before IEDC existed, I worked for the Council for Urban Economic Development. And frankly, during the 15 years I was there, I spent a great deal of time dealing with issues of race, of poverty, of uh, inner city degradation. Um, and this has been going on for some time. And I'm gonna take you on a very brief history of what happened to America's cities uh, uh, over the years. As you know, uh, I, and I don't have the exact numbers, Fred, but Detroit was probably about 2.6, 2.7 million in 1960. Today, it's probably lucky to have 650,000 people. What caused that? What caused that was three or four things, and many of them built around race. One, uh, Eisenhower had helped develop the interstate highway system, President Eisenhower. What that did was it actually allowed mobility of wealth out of cities. 
And so uh, people left the cities and they went to first tier suburbs that didn't exist in the way that we see them today. And then they went to exurbs uh, along the way. Second, in trying to do well, uh, the, the federal court system ordered uh, desegregation of our schools. Well, desegregation caused more middle-class flight. It wasn't just white flight, although that would be a, a substantial part of it, but it was middle-class flight, middle-class black families, middle-class white families that said, I want the best possible schools for my kids. And they saw the segregation of schools as potentially eroding that. Um, and so we had more uh, flight from our uh, cities. And then third, we had the riots of the 60s, which created more. And so what that left was the haves having abandoned cities to a certain degree. New York uh, avoided some of this, uh, but even it, Long Island grew uh, significantly during that time. The Connecticut suburbs grew significantly that time, during that time, as did the New Jersey suburbs. But you look at Cleveland, Detroit, uh, those cities are much smaller than they were in 1960. So we left the poor in the cities, we, left, we allowed uh, wealth to escape, good jobs escaped, uh, social services escaped because there wasn't the tax uh, benefits to provide for that. Fast forward uh, to 2019, 2020, 2021. We deal with the pandemic. I just talked about uh, the loss of small businesses being um, unfortunately disproportionately uh, hitting uh, people uh, based on their gender and people based on their race. Add to that, what can our industry, this, this profession called economic developers do to help more people of color, more, more women enter business, grow businesses, and get a better part of the American dream? And that's what IEDC has been focused on for the last several months. We have gotten money from the Rockefeller Foundation. We've gotten money from the Kresge Foundation. And we have a committee, as you know, uh, focused on race and economic development. And we are looking at how economic developers can play a greater role in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if we can help people of color grow businesses, they are more than likely going to hire uh, people from their neighborhood people that they're related to. And hopefully we can help um, uh, improve uh, uh, more people getting on the ladder and growing up, growing financially up. We also are seeing many companies concerned about what happened. And so we're seeing more contracting and other things going to uh, 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 businesses where the ownership uh, is, is that uh, of some level of diversity. Uh, thank you. That's quite uh, interesting. I mean, you you brought uh, history, you know, into that, and obviously, history often helps to you know uh, bring a much clearer perspective into issues. And I couldn't agree more. You know, uh, now let um, let's pivot a little bit and focus on inequality itself. You know. Let's see if we can 
unpack inequality. I mean, this is another issue that the pandemic has laid bare. And even before COVID-19, the United Nations and other global development bodies were focused on reducing inequalities to ensure no one was left behind as part of the sustainable development goals. Like you know, the more inequality that exists in an economy, the less likely it is for economic growth alone to sufficiently lift up those at the bottom of the uh, ladder. So broadly speaking, and based on your work with uh, economic development organizations in the US and other parts of the world, what are you seeing? What do we need to do? And I want you to give me a practitioner's perspective. I know you alluded to some of this in your last response, but now specifically on inequality, what, what are your thoughts? So I think we have to focus on two or three areas. One, we need to make sure that people who have been left behind and they are undereducated get better training and education, uh, both for those people that could be in the workforce today and think about the next generation that may be still in elementary, middle school, high school. How do we build their skill sets, their confidence, and get them into better paying jobs? Uh, second, we need to reskill people who may have given up, may have uh, uh, thought that the that, uh, the American dream is passing them by. There are millions of jobs in the United States right now that are going wanting. There are companies who need employees tomorrow. Uh, they are semi-skilled and skilled jobs. We need to put people in it and we need to find lots of people and give them both confidence and the set of skills to get those jobs filled. That is regardless of race, it's regardless of gender, and uh, there is not a better time to address some of those. And lastly, we need to make sure that if there are two people equally qualified for a job, that there's not two different sets of pay uh, based on race, based on gender. We need to, all people need to be treated equally and be paid equally. And that's not an economic developer's job. That's a court's job. That's a, that, that is regulatory, a regulator's job. Finding opportunities is economic developer's job. Working with the workforce boards or working with uh, uh, the community colleges and the technical schools, that's an economic development job. Finding employers who need people, that's an economic developer's job. And we need to be the fulcrum uh, to um, let um, organizations that do work with uh, the workforce delivery system to let them know what skills are needed, where the jobs are, and how many exist, and help them think about getting people trained as quickly as possible and put into those jobs. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you did cover even some of the 
projects and initiatives, you know, that we also work on here, you know, uh, talk about the gender gap, you know, which gap, I mean, we do have a division that focuses specifically, you know, on issues related to women, whether it's training or economic mobility. Uh, and also recently, as you know, the childcare crisis has become a major issue, you know, which was uh, amplified by the pandemic. And in the aftermath, you know, there's been a lot of research and interventions to really help to uh, help parents who have to care for their kids while also, you know, uh, working. So I, I agree completely with your intervention. Now let's, uh, let's move on to a related matter, the racial wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, you know, that's been quite persistent and, and extreme. And more importantly, the wealth gap leaves racial minorities in a precarious economic situation, which then creates a vicious cycle. Uh, based on data from the survey of consumer finances, you find that a typical white family in the US has about eight times the wealth of the typical black family and five times the wealth of the typical Latinx family. The question is, what is the IEDC and the EDOs specifically doing to address these disparities? Can you name a few examples, interventions, so, projects? Fred, I'm, I'm experiencing this racial wealth gap. I can't understand why LeBron James makes so much money and I don't. <laughs> Interesting. Now we are coming to that in a second, but go ahead. <laughs> You know, um, I think what we are um, trying to accomplish through the work that I was talking about on uh, race and economic development is what are what is that series of steps that economic developers need to take? And I don't think we have a good playbook yet. Um, is there a good reason why we don't have a good playbook yet? And the answer is probably not. We are probably a little late to the table, uh, but I think there's a lot of people that are late to the table. And I think the George Floyd issue did hit us all straight in the nose and say, wake up, figure out what do we need to do and how do we do it better? So. I, I'm ill-prepared Ill today, Fred, to tell you that X, Y, and Z are the steps that any good economic development agency needs to do to help address those issues. But I hope to be able to tell you in 18 months that we have studied a variety of cities. We have studied a, 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 a number of interventions across the country, and we have looked at opportunity zones. We have looked at uh, SBA lending tools. We've looked at angel capital and particularly those that are focused on assisting uh, minority businesses. Uh, we look have looked at the whole issue of business incentives and where do companies go when providing an incentive 
And once we've looked at those things, what are the set of recommendations that we can make to a, a, a standard economic development organization and say, if you're committed to this and you want to address these issues, here are seven steps or 10 steps or four steps that you can take uh, to do a much better job of addressing these inequalities. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you today. I do not. Uh, thank you, regardless. I think uh, that, that's a good uh, response. And this next question would allow you to, uh, to continue the, 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 the intervention. And it's about executive uh, compensation. I mean, this theme logically flows into executive compensation, which often compresses of both monetary and non-monetary benefits. And as you know, income inequality and uh, executive compensation have both been on the front burner of the economic and political discourse for a while. According to a 2019 study by the Economic Policy Institute, CEOs and about 320 times as much as a typical worker. And while many reasons were attributed to this outcome, including, of course, CEOs' ability to determine their own compensation due to the linkage between pay and stock, the fact that this had nothing to do with increasing productivity or their possession of specific high demand skills generated some debates in the public policy circle. What do you say to that? Do you think policy interventions around extravagant executive compensation can help to address economic and racial inequality? So Fred, that's an awfully interesting question. And as I would say to people, that's not in my pay grade. Um, nobody is going to listen to me or frankly our community talk about um, you know how much do corporate CEOs make and how much more they make than their average employee. The places where and, and, and there are, are a variety of issues behind that. you know does, uh, does the stock market reward productivity, as you said? Does the stock market uh, reward uh, companies that are in growth? Or do they reward companies that are selling off assets that are only focused on the highest margin profits? Or are they uh, rewarding uh, things like uh, sending jobs overseas uh, as a result of uh, they think they could save a buck or two um, by shipping uh, some jobs to China. Well, we learned very quickly that all of that offshoring or outsourcing that we talked about a little earlier, that spread out the supply chain so badly that we were not able to respond in many ways during this pandemic. We couldn't get masks. We couldn't get ventilators. Uh, we, are having, we were having a hard time getting certain medications. Um, we have been, shoot, we were having a hard time getting toilet paper. I'm not sure much of it's made overseas, but there was significant supply chain issues that we've been experiencing uh, for the last 22 months since the beginning of the pandemic. 
Well, that's these geniuses who run these uh, Fortune 500 companies as they shipped our jobs overseas. Now, um, you know, so let's get rid of these quarterly income statements. Let's uh, grade them on different standards. You know, some companies uh, look at three constituencies. They look at the community they're invested in. They obviously look at their stockholders and they view their employees as one of their beneficiaries or, or, or their uh, interest groups as well. Now, I would say that companies who look at the world in that way or CEOs and boards who look at the world that way um, would be a, more a company that you and I would uh, think is one that we would be more interested in investing in. We would be more interested in their corporate culture. And my guess is they are not paying their uh, CEOs that, those gross multiples uh, of an average employee. But where I can make a difference, and maybe uh, Fred, where you can make a difference, is a little lower on this uh, um, escalation ladder. I, my job is to make sure that if there are two people, an African-American candidate for, a, uh, for an economic development leadership job and a white guy chasing that same job, that those two people are paid the same, whichever one gets that job. It is my job uh, to out those communities where I think they are um, not giving a fair shake uh, if there's a, a differentiation in pay based on race. That's where I can make a real difference. And that's where an association like IEDC is responsible for taking on issues like that. I, as I said a minute ago, there are policy areas that I can have an impact. EDA's annual budget, the Economic Development Administration, we can have an we can have some influence there. Corporate CEO pay, uh, never going to happen. They're not going to listen to me. Um, I hope there's people out there that they will listen to, because I think the the issue is is real. Uh, fair enough, fair enough, and uh, consistent with our mantra for this uh, podcast. We say from policy and practice to research and scholarship. So we operate along those four domains. You obviously fall in the practice uh, domain. I know that in subsequent editions, when we get a chance to talk to leaders in the policy arena, you know, we take it on. But thanks for your practitioner's perspective. And based on your intervention, I know that the issue of uh, tax, I mean, taxes, you know, that's something that uh, resonated, you know. And that brings me to the next question, which is really about closing the income and wealth gap. It is not an easy task. Due to limited quality of educational and economic opportunity, the unequal distribution of income persists across generations. According to the Tax Policy Center, the top 1% income earners in America earn about one third of their income from capital investments, which, as you know, are taxed at much lower rates than ordinary income. What do you say to that? 
here again, it's not a place that I'm going to have a lot of um, ability to influence, but it is absolutely an issue. You know, why should um, somebody like Warren Buffett, and I think he would even say he should be taxed more, why should his secretary, which he has talked about on many occasions, be hit with a harder tax bite on a percentage basis than he is? Uh, because she earns her income, probably mostly from labor, as opposed to passive investments, uh, she pays on a percentage basis more taxes than he does. That makes not a whole lot of sense, and it explains why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in many ways. Um, it does not it does not yield an equitable playing field. Um, and I agree with all of the facts that you've laid out, Fred. Um, I wish I could influence it. And if I had Warren Buffett's money, I might spend a lot of it uh, trying to change the world in a way uh, that would in fact uh, potentially uh, uh, make for a more equitable environment. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Fair enough, thanks for being very candid on that. And as we uh, wrap up, you know, uh, the lack of social mobility has economic, societal, and political consequences. To fix the system, urgent steps are needed to expand opportunities for more segments of society, especially those facing the greatest barriers, like you rightly uh, alluded to. So the question is, uh, what programs and initiatives are currently being deployed by IEDC and its member EDOs to move the needle on these critical issues. Again, this is uh, our last question here, but I know you touched on a few of these. Maybe here's an opportunity to um, pick one or two or three programs and initiatives by the IEDC. So it's not as much gonna be the IEDC as it is our members. Um, and our members, fortunately, are being given a lot of money from the federal government to make some real differences right now. You know, EDA, the Economic Development Administration, which you're aware of, they have $3 billion. Their annual appropriation is normally about 400 million. They have nine times, eight times more money than they have in a typical year. You can go agency by agency and look at COVID relief funds that are going um, to many communities across the country. And a fair amount of that money is being used to deal with disparities. It's being used to deal with uh, uh, inclusion and equity. Um, not, all, not all communities are dispersing their money in that way, but many communities are. So I wish I could say that they all look the same and that uh, one community's uh, equity and inclusion dollars are being distributed in the same way in another city, but and, the, and they are not. Uh, this is a, a place where 
people are making up new programs and trying to deploy it in a variety of ways. My guess is you guys at New York City EDC are doing things different than they're doing at LA County EDC or the city of Chicago's development department. And as a, but as a result, there are dollars and millions of it that are being deployed to, to solve some of these various issues. We will not know until this uh, pandemic is gone and the money is spent as to how successful we will be. But as this money is being put out there, as I said a little earlier, IEDC is gonna be looking at some of the better practice. And we are gonna be build, building this playbook to help economic developers think about and deploy resources better in the future. And it's because of people like you, Fred, and the organization that you work for and others that we are going to be better, stronger, and we're gonna address these issues of equity uh, and inclusion much better in the future. I wanna thank you for inviting me and participating in your program today. And it's great to always call you a friend. Wow, uh, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much. I was gonna ask if you had any final thoughts, but it appears that you captured it. Any last uh, thoughts before I wrap this up? Yes, Fred. I look forward to seeing you in person again. This pandemic has been too long and has kept us from doing that. And I can't wait to see you. Thanks for again for having me. Thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time to share useful insights from your decades of wisdom and achievements in the economic development space. And I'll be remiss, you know, not to mention that uh, we wish you good luck as you prepare to retire after decades of uh, service to the organization, you know, on behalf of other economic developers, you know, across the US and globally, you know, we would like to really thank you for all that you have uh, done this past uh, decades. And I look forward to continuing the conversation on our several other platforms. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast. As discussed, economic growth and social inclusion need not be mutually exclusive. For development to be sustainable, it has to be inclusive. From practice and policy to research and scholarship, the global community can work together to redesign the current economic system that has perpetrated extreme inequality and poverty for too long. Thanks again to Jeff Finkel, President and CEO of the International Economic Development Council for joining us. Thanks to the production team for making this a reality. I'm Fred O'Leary, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Bye for now.